When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Bienvenidos. What do we got today? Fire away, dude. So I've been reading Myth of Male Power. Mm-hmm. I'm probably 20, 30% of the way through at this point. It is a bit repetitive. And I'll start with my I'll start with my criticisms. It is, it does get a bit repetitive, but I think that's part of the value of the book. For those of you who didn't check out what we did last week, it's a book by this guy Warren Farrell. And the thesis of the book is that we recognize the ways in which, or many of the ways in which women uniquely struggle and suffer in the world. Like they're more likely to be victims of rape. They're more likely to deal with workplace workplace sexual harassment, those sorts of things. We don't recognize the ways in which men uniquely suffer. And it has led us to incorrectly assume that we have this patriarchal society that favors men. When in reality, what we have is a society that favors the men and women at the top and screws a lot of the people at the bottom. And they can be of, you know, they can be guys or girls or whatever. So anyway, I've continued reading it. It is a bit repetitive. That's one criticism. Another criticism that I have of it is that, and this we talked about this with Cowspiracy, how like he'll use arguments that aren't valid for the point that he's trying to make, and it it unfortunately for me discredits much of what he says. So you're saying he'll say something, you know, it's not a valid argument, yeah. and you go, well, did I just miss? why the other arguments Correct. were invalid. So for instance, and I wrote one or two of them down, you know, he he says that he uses the amount of searches that Google returns when you type in a topic as a proxy for if this thing is being important or is addressed. And it's just like, you know, when you search men's health, you only get this many reviews, but when you search women's health, you get this many results. And I just find that to be like so stupid <laughs> like who cares this there's there's got to be a better way to prove this point um another thing that he says is that he talks about war which is a big part of his argument i think is is well founded that we send young boys to just die and fight for us but he phrases it often uh in such a way that it's like young men go and fight and women are stay at home and are protected and it's like well well not entirely like sometimes those young men conquer a town and kill all the women or rape them like he he, right, right. he can sometimes minimize and I, and I don't think he does as a human being because I've, I've seen him talk about it and I, and I don't see this. But this book was written in 1993 and I do get the sense that he feels like he's fighting an uphill battle. So he has to not talk about the problems that women face and sometimes uh, just makes – just says things like, like treating war as an exclusively male-dominated suffering event when in reality it's just – it's brutal for everyone and men exclusively have made up the front line fighters, yeah. which is a fair point. Yeah, but when you get to a village and you burn it down, <laughs> yeah, exactly. mostly the women are there because the men are all fighting. Yes. And you know what's interesting? This is actually a point I was thinking about for a Charisma on Command video. When you present in an argument, let's say I'm trying to persuade you of anything. Mm-hmm. If I present you with four arguments, 
you will just attack the weakest one. Correct. So people think that when they're trying to prove that someone's wrong or a bad roommate or a Republican or Democrat is bad, the more things they can throw at them, the better. So if I can list 10 reasons why you're a bad person, that's better than four. But actually, the person is going to try to fight you because they don't want to be a bad person. They don't want to be wrong. So the weakest thing you present them with is exactly where they'll attack you. Mm -hmm. And they won't address your strongest points. So it's interesting that you raised this with the book too. It seems like there's this misconception that more is better when trying to be persuasive. And actually, yeah. I think stronger is better. I think that there are cases where more can be better, where you can overwhelm someone who is not digging in their feet resistant with just one, two, three, four, I five, six, more, seven, eight, nine, ten. I think ten. more works when the person wants to buy your narrative. Mm. So for instance, if you're trying to cancel Jake Paul, Yes, and you just go, yes. Jake Paul did this. He did this, this thing that's bad, <laughs> and they go, okay, that's one bad thing. You go, he did this thing that's bad, and also these five things that aren't technically bad, but they're just kind of shitty. Yeah, to someone who already wants to not like Jake Paul or hates Jake Paul, it's like, oh, there's six really strong reasons to hate Jake Paul. So this, I this think it helps with confirmation bias. Brian Callen's Me Too moment was a lot like this, though. There was one like he drugged my drink and raped me, and then there were others that he propositioned me for sex for money. He was creepy. He was and. I was going like, why are these even in here? These are these. Have yeah, yeah. Why are these lumped together? And because I'll you tell get, you when you drug someone yeah, and rape them, yeah. it's a crime and you go to jail for it. And when you make a joke at a comedy club, that's inappropriate. Yeah. You don't go to jail. Or even for if it. you proposition someone for sex and you mean it sincerely, it's like these, these aren't in the same ballpark. Yeah. Uh, but the reason is if you are likely to buy that, the headline says, uh, Brian accused by four women of sexual assault related. Yeah. If you're not going to, if you're not, arguing against someone who's going to think critically about it, I guess, then it's helpful because you can, just, you can yeah. just say, oh, five allegations of misconduct. Yes. One of them is a horrific allegation and the other four are not. And but you don't necessarily need more than that, the headline. If you're predisposed to believe that, the five feels good yeah. to you. Yeah. So, but, but, I but I do think <laughs> if you're going to sit down with someone who's intelligent or going to be critical of your argument, I, that the weakest thing you present is what they're going to attack. Sure. I think that's a, I think that's a correct way of breaking it down. But so other things, uh, things that I liked a lot of it though. So he gave me a, really what he does is for this section is he shines a light on the left side of the bell curve of men. And it is incredible how I didn't, I didn't know that like garbage men is the fifth most dangerous job in America. Apparently like they get apparently in 1993, at least I don't know if this is still true. Like they get maimed constantly by the garbage truck, by the garbage truck and other yes. things like stories of battery acid falling out on them. They, their backs get screwed up. They're, they are the butt of every joke and ever it's not even jokes like what do you want to wind up as a garbage man like, yeah, that's, like just, the, that's the elementary school teacher threat yeah if you don't pay attention you'll be um, a garbage man and it's and he's like even within the thing if there are garbage women they're they're x times more likely to be driving the car rather than in the back handling which is where the danger tends to occur and happen and he he i think effectively though repetitively but sometimes you need repetition goes through a variety of different jobs and circumstances where it's um the truth, yeah, we, we put men in dangerous positions. That's what we have done throughout history. When there's a war, when there's dangerous work to be done, we put young men there first. And we bait the hook, oftentimes in war, with promises of uh, you'll be a hero mm. or prestige or you're a tough macho guy. And so that, that was one thing that I have... I'm going to try to keep my eyes open more. He talks about how there are invisible men, and I can totally relate to this, is that you do not see those people. Like when you walk down the street with the, one of the things that can happen in LA is that homeless people can become invisible if they're not screaming at you. Like you can just get blinded to it and you'll notice somebody walking past you and you'll make eye contact, but 
there's an invisibility that occurs with homeless. And I think he correctly points out that that same thing occurs with the guy fixing the power lines, the garbage man, the steel worker, mm-hmm. um, mining, all, all of these kinds of things. And I don't, I don't encounter miners, but you just, they're overlooked. Their problems are not discussed ever. Uh, and mining is apparently like the most dangerous thing. Truckers, for instance, this is another one that he mentions. And I, I'm curious if you find this to be true. The representation of truckers in media is often stupid or violent. So if you think of like Man of Steel, like Clark Kent walks into a bar and these truckers are like cursing him out. And, mm, and Interesting. Um, I'm trying to think of a, a trucker that I've seen in media that has been uh, at all aspirationable, aspirational, admirable, or likable. And I can't think of... Any. I think in movies that's right. For me, when I think of a trucker, I think of just brutal hours. I think yeah. of the, the guy that was in the magazine where half his face is completely yeah, wrinkled I, because, yeah, because the, the, the sun, sun only hits one side of his face. Yeah. So when I think trucker, I just think, oh, brutal hours, brutal yeah. days, not a fun job, yeah. trying not to fall asleep at the wheel. Mm-hmm. So I don't necessarily think dumb or violent, but I do think hard job. <laughs> and, and ridiculously necessary, you know, like until we have autonomous for cars. For now. For now, right? Until <laughs> we have autonomous cars, and at which point then what happens? But he, he does, I think, fairly shine Yeah, the they're the guy Wolverine fights in the in the... The bar. In the bar. It's, it's, always, it's always some, a trucker, some yeah. jerk trucker who is screwing with a superhero. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Some arrogant, dumb, violent trucker. Or in Dumb and Dumber, you know, it's the jerk in, in the diner is a trucker. Yeah. Um, which I thought, I was like, oh, that's interesting. Do you think truckers are pissed about this? Do you think they just, it's the water that they I live in? I have no idea. I have no idea. They do not tweet about it, as far as I can tell. Uh, they His point is that men have been taught one of the weaknesses of this whole thing is that it's very appropriate, he says, that women have complained about the uh, unnecessary roles that they've been forced into now that technology can free them from the constraints that we used to have a couple hundred years ago, that they no longer have to be the homemaker and they no longer Mm -hmm. have to be all of these different things. And men haven't complained. And that's partially because culturally and historically, uh, you don't complain. That's that's a sign of, of weakness that you don't, want to display as a man well um, i think we talked about this a little bit off air uh, that's because and i don't know if this is cultural or biological or what but there's a strong desire by most men to appear strong yeah. to appear stronger than they are mm-hmm. they, there's a p- tendency and maybe this is changing now in the young people but you don't want to appear sad you don't want to appear hurt if someone hurts your feelings in a breakup in high school you don't you don't show it you know what I mean? Yeah. If you get punched, you're supposed to act like it doesn't hurt. Uh, you're you are there. There is an instinct, but I don't know if it's a biological instinct or one built in us from society to try to front as as strong as we can as people. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so that goes. Complaining is the direct opposite of that, and I think that's why a lot of guys don't complain until they're only with their guy friends and drinking. Because <laughs> at that point, there can be a little bit of, of you know, bitching about stuff. Yes. Uh, sure. Yeah, I, I think that's true. And that is a drawback, at least in the 2021, of the traditional male gender role is that when there are problems, you're not, and we've talked about this in the past, how uh, you see more depression in women than in men. But there have been people that have theorized that male depression you just it's just called alcoholism it's just called domestic violence it's just you know like it 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 finds other outlets than i'm sad it, mm-hmm. it, it comes out in i'm angry or i'm going to hurt someone or you know i kill myself basically yeah. but well, i was no. never depressed at any point i just killed myself yeah. like 
No, we've talked. I mean, one thing we've talked about, I'm bouncing around a little bit, but the other thing is the, the ability to control a man by telling him mm. that a certain behavior makes him more of a man versus yeah. less of a man or a more desirable man to women versus less desirable. That's something I'd, I noticed in my past. Yeah, you could, to- you could so easily manipulate me by just saying that something made me masculine or that something was not masculine. So yeah. when I was reading a book that said that being masculine meant no matter how, uh, I don't know, how do I say this? Not offensively. No matter how your girlfriend is behaving, your job as a man is to be uh, the rock with which she can rage against. This this book is The Way of Superior Man. And that, like like most wonderful things, I think we would agree with like 85% of this book, and yeah. which is why we just took it all wholesale. But one piece that you're describing. Well, is- it's just like, oh, men, what men do when things are crazy around them is be the person that stands against the hurricane winds and just lets them bounce off him. Mm-hmm. And that led me to stay in a bad relationship because I thought that's what a man did. Yeah, and it's like, I oh, took, of course she's going to be the hurricane. It took I'm me, going to be I had rock. to reframe that. I was like, no, a man is someone that demands behavior from the people around him up to a certain standard and then leaves yeah. when it's not. And it's like, oh, okay, cool. Now I can leave because I've reframed what being a man is. But what I couldn't do is just go, <laughs> okay, this might be what being a man is, but it's not fun and I'm not enjoying this anymore. So I'm just going to go be feminine over here and yeah. happy. Yeah. I like still can't do that. Yeah. I had to reframe like, oh no, it's cool because being a man means that yes. when someone doesn't act the way that you expect them to in a relationship, you mm-hmm. leave with mm-hmm. your masculinity. So yeah, I think that's often... You see it all the time in Twitter buyers or uh, Tinder buyers and stuff like, oh, if you're not man enough to deal with the fact that I have, and then just a list of terrible qualities. I mean, think of what a draft is. Like, he he, he didn't point this example out, but if you remember when Bill Clinton, you know, and George Bush, uh, George Bush went to the National Guard, dodged the draft. Bill Clinton ran away. Do- that was a smear on him. Mm-hmm. When Hillary Clinton, who is the same age, ran for president, the same position, and didn't fight in Vietnam, Nobody said a fucking word. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and and I look and the fact that that had never occurred to me, I was like, oh my god! Like, and I it, I I do like, oh yeah, George Bush, rich kid, went to the National Guard. It's like, and again, I'm not saying that we should have gone to Vietnam, but like, where was his wife at the time? Why no criticism of her? Where was did she put her life on the line? Of course not. Like, why would she? So I think he correctly uh, points out this expectation that we have as men as to lay your life down and be a bodyguard uh, for society and women. And that if we want to really reassess gender roles, I think he correctly points out that this bodyguard position is one that we should question uh, collectively. Now, that's not to say, and and I'll go the best, if there is a war, you want the most capable physical specimens who are most likely to win the war to be there. That wasn't how we did it. You know, we have female firefighters. We have, you know, like, and there's, yeah, we have. Well, uh, his point is not one that people would necessarily accept, or his ideal is not one that everyone agrees with, though. His ideal is, let's just treat everybody the same, basically. Let's just not even take gender well, into. I, I think it's a bit more nuanced than that. It's, it's to recognize that the gender roles that persist today had extreme relevance for a large portion of human history. Like, it made sense to go, oh, you've got a penis, you should probably be out there hunting. Okay, you don't. You should take care of the home. You know, like, hey, oh, there's but a I'm war. Just saying there's, you should probably be going and you should probably not be. What I'm saying is there's men and women who absolutely still want the traditional roles. Sure. There's men and women who want, okay, man, you go make the money. You be the bodyguard. Mm-hmm. Woman, you take care of the kids, take care of the house. There's people of both genders that are very happy to sign up for that still. So not everyone has adopted this 
what's his name? Warren Farrell. Warren Farrell. Yeah. Like no one's not everyone's adopted that mindset yet of let's just treat ourselves as identical in terms of our interests and capabilities. Yeah. I agree, but he's really moved me. I guess one of the big shifts that I've been thinking about this week is I've really been questioning that. So, because here's the thing that you don't realize is that what if you could pick and choose, which is what we've, which is really what the women's lib movement has attempted to offer women is the ability to pick and choose which role you'll play. You could still play the female role, or you could play the traditional male role, or you could do a hodgepodge of both of those. Right? You could be the high powered executive, but you could also, you know, love yeah. to cook and clean and, and and those sorts of things if that suits you. So what I've been going is, look, I do like earning money and providing. And if I were to be married, I'd be happy to be a single income earner. Uh, But if I was like, if someone breaks into my house, do I want to be the bodyguard? (laughs) I'm not sure. He he raises the interesting point. uh, And I don't know that I could ever let go of the cultural conditioning. And I imagine if I love someone to that degree and I had kids in the house, I probably would lay down my life for them. But I, I don't have that, so it's tough for me to say. But he does point out that we often talk about how Stay-at-home moms, uh, they're not compensated for their work, and it's a fair point. Like, they do all the cooking, the cleaning, the this and the that, and they don't receive a salary, and they are not recognized economically. But he also says that men in relationships are socially expected to play the role of bodyguard, such that if you are attacked or somebody comes into the house and there's a baseball bat, you don't grab the bat and give it to your wife and say, go get him, honey. <laughs> you know, I'm going to stay up here, and if I hear something, I'll scream and call 911 and then maybe, like, dip out the window. Uh whether or not you have training, you're going down the stairs with the bat, and it's probably nothing. But if it's someone, you're going to slow him down while she escapes. Uh, and, you know, when the Titanic went down, it didn't matter who could swim better. Women and children got on the boats, and men didn't. Like, is there a, is there a reason for that necessarily in that particular circumstance? No, it's that there was this whole cultural thrust of uh, the disposable sex in terms of laying down their life, not in terms of, like, uh, whose opinions matter more, and I think there's fair criticism that uh, the the opinions of women have not been held is in high regard throughout history. But when it came to like who's going to die, mm-hmm. the answer was men. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, sorry, but I'm saying even in the like, even the people I know who identify as feminists, most of them still expect that the man will pay on the first date, mm-hmm. and probably more than half of the subsequent dates. I don't, I don't actually see a lot of people pushing for this, Warren. Uh, Farrell ideal. This is, this is why he wrote the book. <laughs> going 50-50. That's what I'm saying. It's yeah, like, yeah. I don't I don't actually, if you want that, he, it sounds like he has a lot of good prescriptions and ideals for mm-hmm. how to do that. But I don't see men or women really wanting that. I think a lot of men like pursuing masculinity and being rewarded for it, even if it's just with a pat on the head from society. And I think uh, even, the, even the feminists I know would be, Turned off, turned off yeah. or offended by ask, being asked to go 50-50 on a first date. Or if a man gave them the baseball bat while they were in the house together. I mm-hmm. mean, they might say that they want that level of equality, but there's no way they would stay with someone who they didn't feel would protect them in the event of, or at least attempt to, in the event of some sort of an attack. Yeah, there's, there's just still, even from the people who identify as feminists that I know, there's still a expectation that that first date, the guy's going to get the wallet. Sure. And, and, I, and I think what they expect to do is, is say, Oh, no, I'll split it. And then they expect the guy to say no. And if he says, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. That's not their, that's, that's not what they're solving for. Yeah. So this, this guy's, I guess what I'm saying is this guy's prescriptions are kind of for a solution that people aren't asking for. Well, yes. And, and 
he starts by saying this is what, look, if you want equality and you want to really question gender roles, this is what it would entail. It's mm-hmm. got to cut both ways in terms of uh, advantages and disadvantages. And I think that's the, the fairest point. Like, I'm not saying that I can totally release the masculine ideal that has been instilled in me since I was a little boy and, and let go of that. But to recognize, I think, that men and women face different challenges, which which the other will likely only know intellectually and never have to experience. And to say that history is a is simply a patriarchy is to miss that there were also tremendous advantages of being a woman that are taken for granted in current discourse. That That's the big thing. Got it. Makes um, sense. And so, but the other, so I mentioned this to you, so it, it might not be as interesting for us to discuss, but for the audience's sake, he does raise the interesting question of homosexuality, uh, which I, I was fascinated by this bit. So the, the basic idea is that in many cultures, with rare exception, you could probably think of a few, uh, homosexuality, sodomy were condemned. Um, and the question is why? Like, why would that be societally, evolutionarily conditioned? And his answer, which is just a hypothesis, is that it's kind of, well, one, it doesn't make babies. uh, And it's too good of a deal. Like if people, men and women, can get sexual pleasure without producing children and they tend towards that, that society will have fewer children and, you know, will be weaker in the event of a war or production or whatever. Uh, And so it was just interesting for me to think, oh, my gosh, in – what would happen in a world of abundance, and it seems to indicate if this hypothesis is right, is that you'd see a lot more bisexuality and homosexuality. You'd see a lot more people yeah, yeah. opting out of uh, children because that would be less necessary going forward well, for the protection of that that society. This is just anecdotal because I don't have a TikTok, but I my girlfriend uses TikTok, and she happened to be looking at one, and I was like, oh, that's funny. Like She's talking about her boyfriend. She goes, no, oh, she's talking about her girlfriend. And I said, oh, that's, that's interesting. So she's like a famous bisexual TikToker. And my girlfriend's understanding is there's a lot of them. Mm-hmm. And basically that bisexuality is much more widely accepted in people, I don't know, 13 to 22 today mm-hmm. than it was when we were growing up 50 years ago or 30 years mm-hmm. ago or whatever it was. So that we might actually have that. We might have a lot more people who are young adults who identify as bisexual now than we did in the past. Yeah. That's literally just an anecdotal observation from TikTok. Maybe it's not true, but that's my understanding. Well, and I think, uh, I think trans is a similar idea, which is look back in the day, like what you felt like on the inside, it was like, it was subservient to survival needs. Like it's like, you might feel a certain way, but guess what? We don't have enough luxury for you to feel uh, your feelings. You're going out this way. You're going over here. And, that that's just how the, it breaks. And we're probably, we're all going to die anyway. The next <laughs> try and us. So like, we'll deal with what you feel like later. And now, so that there's a relative uh, level of abundance and these gender roles are not as necessary for survival. You start to see this, this surgeon resurgence of, or I guess not resurgence surge of yeah. uh, people coming out as trans. And it's interesting. And I think we're, we're, you're going to see a breakdown of, I hope you see a breakdown of these traditional gender roles, perhaps not too quickly so that we don't lose the things that we still need, but it does seem like we don't need every aspect of gender as we used yeah. to. You do raise an interesting uh, point that I have literally never thought of, which is you don't need a commandment to not cut your own penis off no. or stab yourself in the eyes, like things <laughs> that would make you less useful to society, like being blinded or generally yeah. uh, incapable of having children. There's no commandment that says, hey, don't, Cut your penis off and there, stab your eyes there's out. There's a commandment against suicide. So, which is interesting because that's 
tempting for some. Well, this is what I'm saying is I, <laughs> I guess whoever, well, if you assume that it's written by the man. The collective intelligence the, of societies got together to say you can't do gay stuff. Which meant there was a tendency towards it or an Correct. urge for it Correct. that they felt was, they had to curb. Like not So basically, not only was this happening, but this was happening and they felt it was happening too much for the better for the betterment of society. Mm-hmm. Well, it's just one one correction. It's not that they felt. It's that the collective wisdom of societal evolution, I imagine that there were some groups where it was like, you know, he talks about a little bit. It's just one example about Tahiti, which is an island, you know, without natural predators and invaders. And it's just like way more free sex, way more do what you want. Uh, but yeah, when you put a bunch of competing tribes against one another, the ones that apparently outlaw homosexuality do better, it seems. Uh, or at least have, those have been the ones that have dominated throughout history, perhaps mm. by accident. But I, I think he raises a good point that not just by accident. And they also, interestingly, did have some role potentially for homosexual men. And I haven't gone deep into this in the role of priests. And so there, there was some space made for like learned scholars who would not participate in the uh, necessary, the reproduction of species, but of some sort of ecclesiastical or yeah. like job that they would take why well, I, I used to think that get gay and straight was binary people are going to be mad that i said the historically they, they a lot of gay people were priests <laughs> <laughs> but that, that i have i don't know that that's necessarily the case i have heard that hypothesis i don't know i'm not going to touch that <laughs> what i say i used to think gay and, and straight were binary and i thought because because gay people say that yeah. they were born this way i just yeah. assume okay it's nature not nurture yeah and it's binary and that's just how it breaks out. And it breaks out to be that 10% of the population is born homosexual and 90% are born heterosexual until I learned about the Greek and Roman soldiers mm-hmm. who were all having sex with each other. And that was very confusing to me because I went, wait, these are, why is this population genetically being born nature wise with such a larger degree of yeah, yeah. homosexual tendencies? And that kind of broke my mental model. And that was the part where I switched to saying it's more of a spectrum, which is to say, I think you fall somewhere from absolutely heterosexual and there's nothing society could do to get you interested in same-sex sex. Mm-hmm. Absolutely homosexual, there's nothing society could do to make you interested in the opposite sex. And then people who are in the middle, which goes, if they tell you this is bad, you just won't do it. And you literally won't feel the attraction. You won't have to fight any urges. But if they tell you it's even better than heterosexual sex, yeah. all of a sudden you're happily participating and that was the only way i don't know if that's the consensus mental model but that was the only way i could kind of figure out how it would be possible that depending on the society you would just have a massive amount of the male population that was totally cool with same sex sex because that doesn't hold up if you just assume only 10 percent of the population is yeah leans towards this and that it's all nature yeah but because of my gay friends saying it's very strongly nature that they felt like this since even before puberty i was like okay there must be something genetic as well as a societal thing so that's where i came up with you you have a spectrum and then society falls somewhere on the spectrum and then everybody to the left is cool with same sex and yeah yeah, that's my current mental model sure i mean that's kinsey that's that's that i think he was he graded people like one to 14 or something oh really yeah and uh i think it's reasonable to assume that if there were gay people, even in ages where it would result in your death, that it's there's very little choice and it's undeniable mm-hmm. at that level. Like if you're going to sneak off and risk death in order to do this, and then it's reasonable to say that on the other side, 
there is at least as big of a heterosexual component, if not much larger, because that's what tends towards the propagation well, that, of the species. That was my thinking. I was like, okay, even in, actually what's funny enough is even in the Spartans, there must've been a someone who didn't do it <laughs> just because there were people willing to risk their life to not have opposite well, I, sex. I don't know a ton about the Spartans, but I do believe it was, um, it was a certain segment of the warriors. And in the Greeks, it was a relationship between a mentor and a mentee. Mm-hmm. Like it was, it was, um, curb to particular relationships is how it was socially expressed and, and accepted sure but in the same okay in the same way that even when a closeted gay man is having sex with his wife he's not enjoying it there was someone in the spartan <laughs> army that was just putting in the motions because that's what you're supposed to do with your shield buddy who didn't like it yeah but i think yeah it's like there because it exists in the gay community i assume it exists in the straight community of course and probably larger Probably larger is, yeah. I think, a safe bet. Probably much larger. But but the fact that there's so many people doing middle, it in yeah. a society that encouraged it, I go, oh, there's a lot of us in the middle that in a different society might feel differently. Sure. And that that was a question that I was asking myself is if you removed, which which you could not have in the past, and I don't want to throw out gender roles and say that they're useless or even that we know the extent of how they still are necessary in 2021. Like I wouldn't want to just entirely remove them because I'm not that progressive. I think tradition... It needs to be slowly displaced so that you don't throw out important stuff. Um, I wonder what that middle, how big that middle chunk is when given freedom and not just freedom like, oh, it's legally accepted, but socially not frowned upon. Mm -hmm. And even what you could say is there's, there's, I imagine some subcultures in which it is socially encouraged. I don't know if that's TikTok at this point, but where being uh, different from the sexual norm is... A badge of honor. Of I think sort. for women on TikTok, it's definitely encouraged at this point. Perhaps. I, I, I don't know enough to say. But yeah, my, but my guess would be. Go ahead. What about jail? Isn't that like a widely held belief in like American prison? That what? That like, I guess like the bigger guys will like go for these, I guess, softer looking guys. <laughs> softer looking guys. Well, yeah. I don't know how true that is. I don't know anyone who's, uh, I mean, I actually know someone who went to prison, but he didn't have that experience. So, so I don't know if that's something that just comes from movies or not. Well, I do think. It seems that jailhouse rape uh, occurs more than non-jailhouse rape. Yeah, but I don't know if it's a... It might be more of a dominance move than a sexual move. Sure. Sure. That's fair. I don't know. I'm really uneducated. I've watched a section of one video that seemed to suggest that um, in female prisons, there was couplings. Like, not just, like, girlfriends were far more common than in the world at large. Uh, And I, I could imagine that even if there were men that were not gay outside of prison, doing gay things inside of prison, you can't totally remove that cultural pressure that everyone grew up with that says that this is not right and you can't love this person and it's wrong. And so maybe it has to be expressed as a dominant. Well, I just don't know. I mean, here's what I know that I don't know. So I don't know if that's true or a movie. Yeah, a lot of speculative. (laughs) No, but I'm saying I'm not going to speculate. I don't know if that's true or a movie myth. And actually, if it is true that there's more uh sodomy let's say mm-hmm. i actually don't know if that's a sexual expression due to lack of women or a dominance move to say if you if you do that to someone that somehow is helps you in your survival of the prison environment i don't know i have no idea yeah so my one friend that went to prison never had any of that experience he just saw a guy get shanked yeah so anyway i'm reading the book it's interesting it's a bit repetitive on on some of the parts i do find some of the arguments a bit weak but it definitely has opened my eyes and and what I mentioned to Ben, I was like, it is crazy that throughout my life, I would never consider doing gay things as like a sexual outlet. And I think the fact 
is not because I was born so straight or anything. Like I know that the wall in my brain there was put in there as I grew up. It's like, this is just not something you do. And fortunately for me, it has not been a horrible struggle. Like I feel (laughs) (laughs) lucky to wherever I am, whether it's on the side or the gray zone, it's, it's at a level that is comfortable for me. I had a friend who was bisexual and I was like, what is that like? He goes, well, imagine, you know, you walk into a party and you can be attracted to at most half the people at the party. I walk into a room and I go, I could be attracted to 100% of the people here. <laughs> yeah. I blew my mind. It's like, oh, whoa. <laughs> um, in any event, so this is, uh, do you want to talk about this more? I have just. No, no. Of- I feel like we've really honestly stayed almost too long on this. Cool. <laughs> so this is totally out of left field, but I was thinking, I, I saw somebody in that, that does dishonest marketing and I was <gasps> critical of them in my, my, eye, my mind's eye. And then I thought about what we're doing and if there's anything that's like that. And so there's a handful of areas that I wanted to ask, and I'm curious what the audience thinks. So when I think of what a lie is, it is when you are communicating with someone and you leave out or purposefully misrepresent the truth. Mm. What that requires, though, is an understanding of their understanding of the world. Mm. So if I'm speaking to you, and um, what's a good example? Like, I don't know, if I speak to you in Spanish and you don't hear me, I didn't lie to you. Like, if I say the sky is red in Spanish and you have no idea what I said, I didn't lie because you don't have that understanding. But if you were a Spanish speaker and I said the sky is red, I've lied to you. Now, is that important? Uh, It matters even more if it's a meaningful thing. So if there's some reason where um, you're going to place a bet on the color of the sky and I tell you that the sky is red and you then go and lose a significant amount of money, that is an even more grievous thing. That's my, pers- that's my perspective. So is it, is it meaningful? Is it important to that person? Are you taking their worldview into account and are you representing an untruth? Because we're always not fully representing the truth because language is constrained. So that, mm. that's how I try to like, okay. Till the Neuralink. Till the Neuralink, at which point it's just all. So one of the questions that I have is how do you deal with communicating to mass audiences? This is one of the things that I struggle with on the podcast, which is like, there's somebody out there that when I'm communicating, I'm, we're on the level. They get me entirely. I think mm-hmm. you're mostly there. And then there's other people that have such different understandings of the world that they could misunderstand the literal words that I'm saying in such a way that it comes across as a lie. And I think, well, of sure. That, sometimes some of our audience isn't English isn't their first language. You had a video on Elon Musk where you said mm-hmm. Elon Musk was gifted. And there was a comment saying, how dare you say that Elon Musk is gifted? He worked so hard for mm. everything. No one gifted him anything. Oh, really? Yeah, swear to God. So I would consider, yeah, yeah. And so, the, and so that, that's a, literally, you're just misunderstanding the words I'm yeah. saying. And I think that. And so for that, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put that on myself. But if I knew that that person didn't understand, this is the question that I have. It's like, if I were speaking to that person, and I understood that they didn't have the same vocabulary as me. And I purposely swapped out a word to give them a misrepresentation, a misrepresentation of reality that wound up harming them. And then when they pointed out, I said, uh, uh, uh. Well, so for, this is in, in the video that's coming out. It's the worst Shark Tank pitch ever. Someone says they use they use purposely example. confusing languages. So that they say in this pamphlet, we have 21 clinical trials. And the sharks interpret that as him trying to say they are his trials. Yes. But what he's... They are not his trials. They're trials he has in a pamphlet. But the interpretation is that he's trying to pass them off as his own. He's trying to make the product seem better. He also says, there was an experiment that we based our first study on. And so it makes it, what's our study if it's not our experiment? Which is just to say that... You're giving better examples than I was. This guy knows that he's using literally true language to convey 
an incorrect impression, which is important to the sharks. The ultimate, the ultimate example would be Bill Clinton sexual relations. Yes. That, so, there you go. so, and so this guy, <laughs> this guy in the shark tank pitch, Bill Clinton in the sexual relations, they, what they're saying is literally true. If you yes. lawyer the words, but purposefully meant to give a untrue impression that the clinical trials are theirs or that there he is never hooked no, up with what he said is there is no sexual relationship with miss Lewinsky. And what that meant is, is a present tense verb. Right. And we are currently not in a sexual relationship, but he knew what that was communicating was I'd never done anything with her, yeah. which was a lie. And actually just to credit the, I think the shark tank example, the guy Manish would argue that it was an accident. Mm -hmm. So he wasn't, he would say he wasn't trying to do it. Mark Cuban would say he was absolutely trying to do it, but sure. I wasn't there and I'm not either of them. So I'm yeah. just saying <laughs> it's, it was interpreted as he was lying. So this is a question that I have now. With all of that background, we send out, um, we have an email autoresponder, and it's got my name on it. Mm -hmm. I think that most people understand that I did not sit down in front of my computer that day and write them an email. Yeah. But I know that some do think that. Some people that have, uh, for whatever reason, have not been on the internet a ton or whatever, like, think that I'm writing them. You're writing them real time. Because you actually have either written or I've reviewed I've written signed off on or reviewed every, every email. single email but what some people on. might think is that on that day on April 22nd yeah. at 4 p.m. you sat down and typed it for the first time correct uh and yeah how do you I don't know how do you handle that level of honesty because I do know that there is a subsection of the audience that probably feels tricked is tricked I'm not intending to trick them but it also is written in a way that is is very – it's not written like a newsletter. It is written like a person-to-person, -person, which, to be fair, is how I sat down and wrote it. Like I, I was an individual writing it on a day. Now, one thing that we've had to do, and this might be boring for people, is like I started by being like last week I bumped into this guy. And then we checked it a yeah, year you have later. Yeah, you have to go back and, and you like, write. This isn't last week. That yeah. was last year. And right. so we've it had was like, last week. <laughs> but then you have to go back and go, there was a time there when I bumped into a guy. And so the emails actually get worse, but we try to keep yeah. them – so they're so we've, we've tried to do that. Legit. I don't know if you have an opinion or the audience has an opinion, but that was just something that I thought I was like, if there is a false impression that I am giving, I think that's a, that is a spot where it would be. It's the email list. It's in people thinking that there is a more of a relationship between yep. them and I than a well, one way dialogue. I'd be curious what the comments think. Cause to me being in the world of marketing that one's an obvious one, but maybe yeah. that's because, so anytime I get an email from someone, you know. I know that they might've written this six months ago. And I know even if they wrote it that day, it was sent through a software. They didn't actually type in my email address personally. Uh, I just would ask the people who are listening, what is what was your impression mm -hmm. of when you get an email from somebody because you signed up for an email list, do you think that they sat down and wrote it that day? Do you think that they personally typed your email in and they're emailing just you? Yeah. I had assumed not. I had assumed that people know that that's not the case, but I would be curious. Well, here's and here, then here's the question. I know that there's one. I know that there's many who don't. Not that a percentage is going to be easy to find, but what's the percentage at which you hit a tipping point? Which mm -hmm. you go, look, 35% of the people think that you're talking to them. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they think they-, well, they I, mean, I mean, I really just want to outsource this to people that aren't us because sure. this is a question I would love. Pe write in a comment- or at least like a comment that you agree with so we can get a sense for if this is 95% of people know, 45% of people yeah, know. Yeah. I would have guessed it was quite a high percentage, but mm -hmm. I could be totally wrong. Yep. Cool. Just let me know. Do you have any stuff? I have a handful. But uh, Yeah, I mean, I, w I think you should just exhaust your list because my stuff's rando. Well, here, I got one. Okay. I'll do one. So the results published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Did you see this? No. They, uh, they did a study. 
two sessions of psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy were as effective in treating depression over the course of six weeks as daily SSRIs. Mm. So this is the first ever head-to-head of psilocybin versus an antidepressant. It's called Lexapro. Normally, you do psilocybin against nothing. And they go, psilocybin is better than nothing. Psilocybin can help depression. But this was the first study they'd done. Oh, in every way that we measured it, it's either better than standard antidepressant Lexapro or a tie. How was it better? Well, I mean, do they have so many? They the way they test this is, you know, they have a therapist who's there, and then they have self-reported stuff. Self-reported, therapist reported, got it. Uh, so they did a number of things, and it's kind of hard. Mental health is hard to track. It's not sure. like body fat where you can just, <laughs> you know, like scan someone. Yeah, like, oh, yeah. this person's this much depressed. But yeah, it's the first. It's the first head-to-head one, and they went, wow, this is. I mean, if you. If you were hoping that psilocybin was going to become a popular alternative for treating depression, this was as good as it, it could have gone. Yeah. So this, and yeah, because the, the thing is, and I just want to explain this, I guess if people don't know, most of the time you go on antidepressants for SSRIs, you are on them. And when you go off them, you are back to a similar mental health issue. Maybe you're less depressed than you were when you went yeah. on them, but like they don't cure you. They are a daily band-aid yeah and the uh, psilocybin assisted psychotherapy it was two sessions at which point the person felt as good as the people on the antidepressants yeah, after the psilocybin had left their system right and, so yeah. which is to say that they're it is making their brain change in a way that's helping them and should in theory help them for over a long period of time and maybe they'll have to go back every couple sure. months to read go through it but that's incredible compared to daily therapy or a daily pill so yeah that there was a study and it's it's very impressive results for psilocybin mm. yeah no i think uh, the one thing that i would say that as having done this now several times is i think it's going to be oversold as a silver bullet i'm glad they did it twice i don't think it's going to last forever for these people it, it, it sometimes can but i think that one thing that's going to have to be careful is as there's a lot of excitement about this stuff people this is what happened when I first did it, will tell you, like, this is going to change your life. Mm-hmm. And, and, like, there's going to be a before and an after. And sometimes that can be the case, but I actually think that it is not most commonly the case. But it's, Yeah, but SSRIs don't come with, they're not downside free. Oh, for sure. So if you, be, yeah, I'm not a big So if you SSRI can go, fan. if you can do psilocybin therapy once and then two weeks later and then four weeks later and then every three months for the rest of your mm-hmm. life, but not have the, the risk that comes with a serotonin receptor inhibitor, yeah. that is uh, I think a better alternative that's a more appealing alternative to a lot of people. Yes. Yeah. No, me too. I mean, my mom was in that camp. She was on SSRIs for a long time, got off, struggled, like went to, went to a personal development program. Was like, I need to get off these, got off these, had a hard time and has been doing psychedelics since then. And it's not gotten perfect, but what I, what I've told her and I believe is that, uh, SSRIs are sometimes necessary, and if, if you know, consult your doctor. But um, in her case, I felt that they were a mask. It's like you haven't addressed any of the underlying issues. Like you're just taking a uh, a mellower every day. Well, sometimes the you. other thing is they can flatten your your happiness. Sure, so they, they can have certain effects maybe where they bring your emotions in from both sides. So yes. you just have a tighter range of emotions. At, at no point did she think about uh, her past or her family or this or why she's this way. It just you know, and then you do psychedelics, and it's like, oh my god, these flashbacks from my childhood and all mm-hmm. of these other things, and it. I could be wrong, and I don't think the story is always necessary, but in reviewing some of that and getting closure on some of that, it does seem to have a longer-lasting effect than simply regulating the 
whatever's being dumped in your brain on a day-to-day basis. So I'm, I'm thumbs up for, for psychedelics. <laughs> I think everybody knows that who watches this. Any other stuff you got? Yeah, I got a bunch of stuff. So some race things happened this week. I don't know some how much we want to touch on them, but uh, Chauvin is going to jail. Yeah. That, that verdict came out. I have nothing novel to say on it, but mm-hmm. uh, I didn't, I didn't follow the trial. So, you know, that happened. Then there was a, a white cop that shot a black girl who uh, people were very excited to cancel until it came out that the girl he shot was trying to kill another black girl and he actually saved a girl's life. And then LeBron de- deleted his tweet and everybody was, oh no, this LeBron, is, LeBron this is tweeted a, your next. Uh, yeah. The, pitch, the pitchforks came out and then the pitchforks got put away. And I don't know if you have anything to say, but those were the two biggest news stories of the week. No, I'm kind of, I mean, I, you and I have talked a lot offline. I am, uh, there is a clear narrative that that is popular on Twitter and with many papers, and it's uh, they are searching f- to seize upon white perpetrators and and uh, marginalized victims. And when the narrative doesn't fit that, it's not it's not widely publicized or it is treated as a gun issue. So just for instance, there was a shooting in Austin. That was a police officer. Now I don't care personally. It was a black police officer, but that is not important to that story. There was an NFL player who killed a family. Uh, he was black. I don't care that he was black. The story is that he has CTE. But there was the guy in Colorado who shot up a Kroger. Ten victims were, were white. Their race was not listed. Uh, and so one of the things that I am, I just said, turn it off. I'm getting tired of seeing is like, it seems like a, uh, a worldview in search of evidence. Mm-hmm. And there's going to be evidence. It's a big country, man. People of all different scholars <laughs> kill each other all the time and uh some of them are egregious but the idea i think unfortunately if you're just sitting back and you're treating the news and twitter as your eyes is they have very selective vision mm-hmm. and what they're going to report to you uh, is that it, it happens in a particular way which is not necessarily representative of a broader statistical view of things and this is this is the primary problem and this is why we talk about not listening to the news uh so that's my perspective on it it seems like a like a conclusion in search of evidence and when the evidence, like if the evidence doesn't match is it's, uh, we have mental health crisis or uh, this is CTE, like it just gets sorted. Or gun in, problem. Or gun problem. It gets sorted into some other camp. And I agree, by the way, I think those are the right takes. When an NFL player goes into someone's house and get like, look at his brain, see if there's damage from all of that stuff. Yeah. Like I'm not, his skin color is uh, definitely like 99.9999999% not not the thing that's causing it. I only leave that point zero 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 one because anything is technically possible. Uh, You're saying, yeah, the football player you think did it because of the brain trauma, or well, or because of his upbringing, or because of anything. But he did. It, it doesn't need to be like the color of his skin and the color of the victim's skin is unimportant yeah. to that story. And I think it is similarly unimportant in many of the stories where it is important, where it is given uh, the utmost importance. Um, and you will conclude that yeah, you're oh my saying gosh, this last cop was white shot a black teenager who was trying to stab a black teenager, you could just leave off the races. You just say a police officer shot a girl who was trying to stab another girl. Yeah. Uh, And even, you know, Warren uh, Farrell talks about this, like, you know, does it matter that they're girls? Does it matter that they're... And I think some of these things do matter, but it's also, uh, we mentioned this last week, when we're hearing uh, single stories, you know, of of a single individual who died, you have to ask yourself why. Like, is what is sensational about this? Is it the age of the person? Is it the this? And is this something that is going to help me 
reduce suffering in the world to a meaningful extent if acted upon and legislated against? Or am I missing the bigger things that could save a ton of people? Mm-hmm. And when you hear those single stories, I go, we're, we're missing the things that, that the world and America needs in order to like really reduce suffering and help the most people regardless of their skin color. Because to me, that's, that's not how you should approach the problem of reducing suffering in the world. Yeah. The one interesting thing that you pointed out, which we, I don't have data on, haven't run an actual study on, is, is just to pay attention to when race is talked about and when it isn't, if that makes sense. So like when is the race of a victim talked about and when is the race of a criminal talked about? And you'll, you'll see that it tends to pop up more in certain uh, cohorts than others, if that makes sense. So if the person who's doing the shooting is white, you're more likely to hear their race. If the victims are white, you're less likely to hear their race. I don't know if that's true or not, but it's just something we've seen anecdotally. If you're a grad student, you want to run that study, go for it. Yeah, but I thought that was interesting. I don't even, I'm not saying it's true, but it's interesting to think about, and I have started to notice it when I just look at how the news is reported. But it goes beyond that because like, we're not hearing about every gun death in America, Yeah, yeah. certainly. So it's like, you can't even see what you're not seeing. And this is why, unfortunately, and we have this podcast where we talk about the news because I've been unable to completely disconnect finds its way into my into my bloodstream somehow. But uh, the things that you're not seeing are so important to context of what you are seeing. Yeah, we don't get, not every police shooting is covered. So you sure, don't even not know. Not every egregious police shooting is covered. You know, you, like you are, and, and the most interesting question is, how is what is bubbling up to the top being selected? Mm-hmm. And that, you know, how, what, what is the... Uh, if there were your eyes, you know, what is, what is the, uh, the optical illusions that my eye is trained to, to show to me? Um, and that's why I try not to act too much on the news. But, if I, but what I do think is valuable are like broader trends. And that's why I like Ray Dalio because he seems to be a... Because he looks at the last 800 years? Yeah, he looks at the last 800 years and talks about... And he's like, yeah, we're going to print money because everyone always prints money and then that always doesn't work. And <laughs> you know, it's like, it's good for a short time. Uh, bubbles are great. That's what I saw him say in the last thing. He's like, oh, bubbles are awesome. He's like, bubbles are so fun. Everybody loves bubbles. And I was like, yeah, everybody does love bubbles. Yeah, it's just when they <laughs> pop that it becomes a problem. <laughs> um, do we, do we, this is, we just mentioned it. Our uh, Ivan, who, who works with us, has a TikTok, he talks about finance stuff. And at one point he went on and said, you know, that this particular cryptocurrency is, is, a, is got no use case. It's, it's you know, moon, safe moon or whatever it is, like all these meme stocks and he receives a lot of hate and pushback. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And 
what I told him to say, which I will say now, is that if you're out there in the world and everyone around you feels like they're getting rich and there's this no, you're not allowed to pump the brakes, consider that those people who are saying that are trying to rip you off <laughs> and have like bought into some scheme, want you to get in behind them to pump it up just mm-hmm. like a Ponzi scheme so that they can exit. Uh, I think that's what's what's happening. Another thing that was, it's so fascinating. Um, Coffeezilla pointed this out. Chamath, who I have previously really, really liked, and I, I don't know how I feel about this thing. I don't know a ton about it. He's got this bit clout. Have you heard of bit clout? No. Okay, it's a social exchange that has a crypto layer on top of it. And what it does is it allows people to come in and purchase uh, coins related to a particular individual. So the highest rated coins are Elon Musk, Justin Bieber, etc. And if those people come in, they can then claim their name and the coin that has been invested upon, some percentage of the coin that has been invested. I might be screwing up the... Okay. The argument here. In any event, in about like, I don't know, a couple of weeks, this has gone from a $0 to a $1 billion valuation. And he then contrasts that with a clip of Chamath earlier in his career saying that the half-life of a company is as long as it took to succeed. <laughs> so he's like, mm. it took Facebook 10 years to become a valuable company. So imagine that they have 10 years. And he's like, so what do you think, Chamath? Like, this was nothing a month ago. It's worth a billion today. Where's it going to be next month? And I think it's... I think Chamath was right the first time around. Uh, I don't know how much back back information has gone at this bit, bit clown thing. Coffeezilla does an interesting job, and I don't. It, it's too technical for me to really deeply understand. But of kind of pointing out that uh, they're pumping up the valuations of some of these people. Like if you look at the primary investors in Elon Musk, they're the people who received the initial coin offering. So mm-hmm. basically, what happens at this is they give all the founders a bunch of money in this fake useless money mm-hmm. and then try to get everybody else in. But in order to make Elon look valuable and other people look valuable, they invest in them. Uh, it's, it's, it's who knows what will happen with this bit cloud. My sense is, and I, and I hope it's not the case cause I kind of viewed him as like a superhero guy uh, that it's, it's, it's BS and it's going to yeah. fail. And here's, I, I'll put, I'll go out on a prediction, which is completely on a limb without a deep understanding of crypto or blockchain or anything. Uh, BitCloud's going to disappear. All of these other, like, SafeMoon's going away. Dogecoin is going to crash, and I'll put a time frame on that of uh, 18 months. Mm. So if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But uh, I'm betting on that because I'm not investing in any of these things. Yeah, yeah. So that's my, that's my completely uneducated guess of, of this kind of stuff. Well, I think my investing strategy, which will absolutely miss out on massive short-term gains, is try to make your money by doing something that is valuable to other people and investing in companies that are valuable to other people. So we had a friend who we were just talking to on the roof who invested a lot of money in a cigarette company because it has a high dividend. I would I would uh, suggest to not do that unless you really like that cigarette companies exist because there's other ways to get a high dividend by investing in a company that doesn't do something that you think is that's, evil. That's almost a third point. So like... That company is creating value to its customers in the sense that they are electing freely to purchase those products. But you're adding a third piece, which is, do you want a world where this particular thing grows? Like, do you want to pay for this to persist? I would try to orient people towards when you are making money yourself, it's because you're adding value for other people. And when you invest in something, invest hoping that it will, uh, I guess grow (laughs) and that that'll be good for the world and also thinking that it's 
adding value to the world. So yeah, I guess there's three parts. And so if you think that Bitcoin is the future because of the use cases that you understand about the technology and you think it will be the world's reserve currency, sure, buy Bitcoin. I think that's great. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to try to ride every coin to its 100x in a month gain. You know what I'm saying? But you also will, uh, even when you lose 50% of an investment, be able to confidently hold because you'll go, this is just a road bump. The company, the underlying company is something I believe in and support. And it will not make you the most money, but I think it is a good way to safely make money and feel good about it. Well, your other thing is, and this is the most boring investment strategy is like, don't read the news ever dollar cost average in because you're not trying to time a pop Mm -hmm. and don't take out money for at least 10 years. Yeah. (laughs) And like, and, and therefore there's no need to watch what anything does. Like if you believe in Bitcoin, don't try to time it, invest some today and take a peek in 10 years. That, that tends to be your investment strategy. And for all the money that you have tomorrow, get a job, start a company or like if you need money next year, work for that money and let your investments pay you back in a decade or more. Yeah, and I think when you're if you're an entrepreneur trying to start a business, tr- think of the person that you're getting money from as mm-hmm. someone you're meant to give value to beyond what they give you. Yeah. And I think a lot of people, it doesn't seem to be how entrepreneurs are problem solving, or a lot of entrepreneurs, I'll say, are problem solving what to start. Yeah. It's kind of how do I get Maximum. get yeah. mine as quick as possible, and yeah, you'll take sponsors that you don't believe in, and you'll ask. Instead of asking for a revenue share, you'll ask for money up front because you don't think you'll deliver. You don't think your audience will actually buy and you're trying to make a product that... Let's slow down on that one because I feel like we have some people who might want to do YouTube and, and you just said something that they don't get. Do you want to repeat that? Well, I don't even remember. I just okay. listed like so four things. For sponsorships, <laughs> for sponsorships, don't take sponsors that you wouldn't recommend and for a couple of reasons yep. and, one, and there are legitimately self-serving reasons. If you don't totally recommend them it is obvious to your audience right and we've done this in the past we did a GoDaddy thing it mm-hmm. wasn't like GoDaddy's awful but it's like it's not it's well not it's like, a lesson it's a lesson yeah, i had yeah. to learn yeah 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 then um listen right? my track record's not perfect I'm, well, I'm learning as i go sure sure but it's also it's not that GoDaddy is evil or like it, w- it wasn't a cigarette company i don't have any issue with GoDaddy's thing it's just not we're not stoked on it mm-hmm. if you can limit yourself up front and you reduce your sponsorship income because you're saying no to these mez what happens is you build greater trust in your audience. And when you do recommend, what you can say is, I'd like a profit share. Mm-hmm. Like instead of just paying me up front, give me a percentage of the money that you earn. Well, let's talk. This is a good transition to a, to a yeah, sponsor yeah. of ours. So there is a, there's a, something called marketing step-by-step. Which we recommended last week. Recommended and last we've week. we talked about it I half a dozen times before. Have, I have genuinely recommended it to every friend who wants to be an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. So I can get on the podcast and I can very strongly recommend it. If I were to rec, I don't want to bash anyone, but if I were to grab a random company that w- hit us up for a sponsorship, all I could do is describe mm-hmm. their product. If I'm being honest, go, oh yeah, we got hit up by this sunglass company. They sell sunglasses. If you want sunglasses, keep sun out of your eyes. You should buy it. <laughs> Whereas with marketing step by step, I go, this is literally the product that I recommend to every one of my friends and family who I love. It's mm-hmm. amazing. You should definitely get it. So that does better for me but it's also better for the audience because you, like when people buy it they're going to get way more than their money's worth which means the next time i recommend something they're going to go oh this guy's trustworthy let's talk I, let's talk dollars because i think we're all of this money by the way is going into a bank account to 
help the podcast persist. Yeah, it either goes to equipment we're or not, We're not getting any or... of this money, so I don't mind. I don't even mind chatting about it. Sure. Uh, when we receive a sponsorship on this, we normally get like a couple hundred bucks. A couple hundred bucks. Um, and that's fine. We have, you know, 10 to some thousand listeners and they may or may not purchase depending on the product. And that's totally understandable. And just so you know, everything that we've done, we have recommended and tried. But this is one that is like emphatically, to your point, there's, there's probably a dozen things that I'm emphatic about, depending on what you're interested in. And this is, I've been recommending of, this for five years, exactly. eight years, whatever it is. So when we said it on the podcast and we'll continue to say it, a lot of you were interested, a lot of you bought, and we made, we sold $10,000 worth of marketing step-by-steps. And we asked them, don't pay us upfront. Just like, look, if we don't sell any, we don't sell any, give us half of the revenue of what you sell. So we, we made $5,000, which is more than 10 times as much money as we would make on a regular sponsorship. Which means if I just took every crappy sponsor that contacted seven us. Seven crappy sponsors <laughs> and, and blew your guys' trust, we'd have less money. Yeah. You would be worse off. <laughs> no, like, and instead, and the other thing is this is this normally uh, goes for $1,000. I happen to know the guy that runs it. We, were, we negotiated back and forth a different price. Mm-hmm. And we have a link for $100 for this program, which mm-hmm. means that I feel very confident mm-hmm. that if anybody gets it, they're going to get way more than that in terms of value. So it's a win for them because they're getting a lot of value. It's a win for the company because they're selling a lot. It's a win for us because we're making more. So this, yeah, this selective high integrity process actually ends up being better for us, the audience and the sponsored, the sponsoring companies. But not in the short term. We are over a year and a half into this podcast. Right. We've not turned a profit yet. We, we probably could start to if we continue to do these sorts of things, but that's fine. We've got Charisma on Command and Charisma on Command took a long time to get going. And this is to Chamath's point, the half-life of success, like delay, delay it. You know, it's still good. You want to make sure that you have product market fit. I'm not saying delay product market fit. No, a lot of people take the first sponsor that hits them up, no mm-hmm. matter who it is. Or, or they, they sell a product that they're not proud of. And, and if you can slow yourself down and just focus on, uh, is this good? Am I really loving the thing that I'm making? Is my audience really enjoying it? Am I firing on all cylinders here? That will take more time and pay you back a lot over the long term. So anyway... That's, uh, you know, we can get off the soapbox now, but <laughs> if people are interested, the way you get to marketing step-by-step is you go to ebonpagantraining.com slash charisma. You get it for $97. This is literally, in my opinion, the best business course for people who are starting a business or run a business. It's about marketing and change charisma on command. It's the reason we're called charisma on command. It's been changed our name. Yeah. Hugely impactful on our success. Yeah, somebody it, asked a question about this. Can we hop into it now? I don't know if you saw it. Somebody said, what did you learn from the program? Might as well just do it now. Oh, is that a YouTube comment? I, I saw it on Patreon. Yeah. I have no idea which one you're talking about. Oh, it's, it's, all right. You want to answer it? So people, so we recommended marketing step-by-step people want to know what we learned from it. Yeah. You just mentioned one. Well, um, so, I mean, the biggest thing I took from it is how to talk about your product, how to focus. I mean, this is the whole client focus kind of comes from marketing step-by-step trying to figure out what your, who are you creating your product or service for? How do you uh, convey to them what you have to offer? Marketing step-by-step was hugely important for me in terms of learning how to communicate about Charisma on Command, how to write in a way that is persuasive or how to speak in a way that is persuasive. So, I mean, I remember, do you want me to, I remember the exercises if you want me to. No, go for it. Yeah. So, one of the things that a huge mistake beginning entrepreneurs is they fall in love with their product and and, and it's a, it's an ego exercise. They love what they do and they name it, you know, one of the most common things I know a number of people who are fitness trainers and they always name their business body by their name, yeah, yeah. body by Daniel, body by this. Charisma by Charlie. Yeah. Yeah. And it's because 
the business, which is understandable, starts from an ego place. This is me. This is my baby. I'm putting it out into the world. And the total shift is get get away. <laughs> this is about the audience. What's the benefit? So what is the benefit? And so one of the first things that we did was we changed our name. I used to call ours what we Kick-Ass Academy. And I thought Kick-Ass Academy, I was 22 years old. I was like, because it's cool. And I was going to add the other thing I was like, I was going to call it you know, like fuck average because I was this super cool 22-year-old and I was anti-being yeah, average. Yeah, kind of angry at the establishment for the angry student at the loans establishment and for, for the loans the, telling and us the, charisma yeah. wasn't a skill yeah. and that it was like eye color. And so Kick-Ass Academy to me was really cool. But what I didn't, and multiple people would be like, is that a dojo? Do you like beat people up? I'd be like, no, man. It's And I would <laughs> re-describe to them. And it never sunk in that like there goes a customer. There goes yeah. all of these people who think that you're some dojo are not paying attention to what you're doing. Can I talk about your ex's business? Because I think that's a really I good reason. Yeah, it was Body by. So, so the, it used to be called Body, body by, by her name. By her name, and then it got changed to Painless Golfing. Yeah. Do you know that Body by Sarah? It's a fake name, right? Body by Sarah is. Uh, we just said the name of a company. If you guys want to stalk her, so <laughs> no. What I'm saying when you hear that name, we you haven't dated for three years. So you don't know. <laughs> you don't know what it's for. You don't even really yeah. know necessarily that it's for older men who are interested in golf. Well, you definitely don't know it's yeah. for older men who are interested in golfing. But when you know the company's called Painless Golfing and you're a golfer who wants to golf more but has body pain, it's immediately obvious that that's a good company for you to Correct. start to follow, maybe purchase from. So that that all, that understanding comes from marketing step by step. So the shift from Kick-Ass Academy to Charisma on Command was, you don't realize the other point that he makes is that the name of your business is the most important marketing decision you will ever make. And a lot of people sit around with their friends like, what do you like? What do you like? It's That's not how you do the most important marketing decision. You talk to your ideal customer mm -hmm. and you talk about their fears, their frustrations, and their aspirations. That's huge, those three things. And so I sat down with the people that we wanted to be asking us questions, buying from us. And they were sometimes our close friends. They were sometimes friends of friends. They were people that had, that were like our favorite clients. And we asked them like, what do you want? And one of the things that you'll realize, particularly in, in the info business, but I think in anything, is the way that you think about a problem in the world is different than a way that a novice thinks about it. Mm. So for instance, a lot of people would come up to me and be like, I'm, I'm already charismatic, like I've got it, I'm good with my friends, and if I can just get like 20 minutes with the superior or a girl that I like, I'll knock it out of the park. And me, being self-centered, but also more knowledgeable than was like, that's not charisma, dude. Being likable around your friends is called being a, person <laughs> you know like being charismatic is knowing that you can get those first 20 minutes so you're not and I would I was contradicting them I was like that's not real confidence if you can't do it in the situations that are most important yeah but I wasn't so I was disagreeing with them and then when I described their problem I was like look you're not that charismatic you can't you can't turn it on when you need to you don't have it you're you, you're kind of lame and that's essentially what I was communicating to these people and what marketing step-by-step -step teaches you is you're not going to sell someone into your program if you don't, if you don't meet them where they are yes. in their own mind. Yes. So the reason you interview people and you ask for their words of the, their frustrations, their fears, and their dreams is because what you're trying to do when you market something is meet the your ideal prospective client where they are mm -hmm. and then take them from there to understanding that the solution to the frustrations and fears that they're having or the method that they can achieve their dreams is with the product or service that you have. Yeah. And so if you can't meet them, if you're, it's like a map, but they don't know where they are on the map. Mm -hmm. It's completely useless. So yeah, the, the idea that you would interview people and figure out where they are and then start from there in your marketing, that came from marketing step yeah. by step. So, and just 
concretely, that big shift for us was like, for instance, our buddy was captain of the Princeton football team, super successful. He became Forbes 30 under 30. And he was this guy who described himself this way. And uh, he was very good buddy. But if I'd spoken to him and been like, so you're not that cool. It, it, it just wasn't going to click with him. Yeah, ever. yeah. He goes, what are you talking about? I was the captain <laughs> of the Princeton football team. <laughs> and so I had to say, look, you know that you can knock it out of the park. You just need when those you're first good. 20 minutes. Yeah. When you feel on... And that was, he's like, yes, this is me. All I want to be is more consistent. And here's the truth. Both descriptions were true. Mm -hmm. They were both realistic descriptions of what was happening, but one was my perspective and the other was his. And you learn to use their perspective and to put yours secondary. Um, so that was a big thing. Uh, we got the name from it. We got that. I'm sure. It also just has, I mean, it, it has general persuasion it, it just teaches you generally about how to persuade people. So it teaches you certain triggers. Some of them come from, uh, you know, Cialdini in terms of social proof and things like that. But then it'll also talk about other things like the importance of how, how do you build trust? How do you convey your authority? How do you do these things so that somebody knows that you're the right person to solve this problem or achieve this dream? Yeah. And so it goes through more at a psychological level. How, like what are the triggers you have to hit in order to, take them on that journey from where they are to being really excited. I would say that one, one weakness, and it's been years now since I've gone through it, but um, I, I think that he correctly, because it's a marketing program, focuses on marketing mm -hmm. a ton. But the reason that I supplement this when I describe it for more advanced people with, I think it's, it's, it's Clay Collins's course. It's, I think it's called the pre-sell formula. It was called the pre-sell formula. He's now rebranded at the interactive oh, launch. We don't have a deal with him. Maybe we could look for one, but I think it's called the interactive launch today. What marketing step-by-step -step does is perfect for what it does, but what it misses is how do you design your product in a way that is interactive with the marketing? Because marketing step-by-step -step assumes you have a pre-existing product, mm. and ideally you don't. Well, I would take the same lessons from marketing step-by-step -step and take them to the pre-product process, which 100%. is to say, you still do the interviews in marketing step-by-step. -step. You get your ideal client, you figure out their fears, frustrations, and aspirations, you ask them the questions from the program, and then you take a step back and assume you have no product, no service. You go, okay, what is the best way mm -hmm. to solve these fears, solve these frustrations, and, and get people to achieve their aspirations yeah. and then you create something that does that because that's going to be easy to market yeah yes so i'll see if i can find that link but that's that's then the next step is it's not just the marketing it's how marketing interacts with product development so mm -hmm. anyways too much too much business too much <laughs> but no it was great i mean it's a good day. it's a good question it helped us a ton it was very very influential in helping us get out of the uh low four-figure revenue yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a month situation that we yeah. were in. So uh, one other random thing, and then I don't know if you have more, but so Brian Rose is running for mayor of London. Mm -hmm. I saw he's that. He's the London real guy. Uh, he's been covered extensively. He's He did the David Icke thing at the beginning. You know, COVID is 5G related. Has never really answered for that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and like, what are we missing? Uh, I'm open to, the, hey, explain it, you know, run it down. How come, you know, I got it in December. Was there a tower that went up nearby that I didn't see? Yeah, yeah. Well, this was my question is why don't, <laughs> if 5G causes COVID, why don't you see the most COVID cases in the highest 5G density area? I truly remain open to explanations that just, I'd like to hear one. Uh, so Did you see? <laughs> sorry, this is just a funny one. Um, 
So that I, when I say that, I mean country by country, because yeah. actually it is in cities. It goes to densely populated yeah. areas. So someone did an amazing graph that Subway sandwiches shops cause COVID. <laughs> because if you track how where Subway sandwiches yeah, yeah, yeah. shops are located, it's where all the COVID cases yeah. go. Because it just correlates causation. to population. Yeah. But it was a, it's a great graph. So he did that. Then he had the digital freedom platform where he raised over a million dollars and was going to supposedly create this platform that competed with YouTube. Nothing exists. Uh spent 60,000 of those dollars on a live cast with David Icke instead of just recording it and then brought like made in my opinion very questionable decisions and is now running for mayor of London and what's interesting is he seems to be trying to do the you could call it the Steve Jobs Donald Trump reality distortion playbook where he has been insisting for months that he's in a shoe in to win the the candidacy of london at best at worst second place and what he points to are the bookmaker odds which are easily moved by placing a bet on yourself <laughs> uh and he doesn't listen to the polls in which he doesn't even register the polls that are being done in london uh he's in the one percent other category and he says that that's an outdated form of of you know every every poll that he does on the street says that he's a shoe in to win and I mean, I will, I will, while I don't believe that, I'll maintain a, okay, let's see. But my question for him is like, look, if this reality distortion thing doesn't work out and you don't show in the charts of people, have you not just burned your, your, uh, credibility to the ground? Like all, all of these years that you work to, to build a ton of credibility it's uh, it seems kind of like an all or nothing gamble mm -hmm. that I don't really understand. Well, sometimes it's not true because I was saying this with David Icke. People, he was Dave, David Icke was saying that Corona caused by five G. Corona caused by five G, and if that comes out just undeniably false, I don't think it will really hurt him much. What's interesting is it almost the more outlandish the claims that David Icke makes, and I and I seriously remain interested in like. Explain it to me. You know, run run me down why when I got it, Ben got it, and my brother got it, who I live with, and none of us was there five G, but my neighbors didn't, who I don't talk to. Like, it acted was 5G, a lot like a virus. It it seemed to be transmitted via. Oh, is, okay, maybe the five G made me weak or whatever. But it, it it seemed a lot like a virus that was uninfluenced by five G. And the the further thing is like, if COVID goes away and five, I don't know if and five G persists i i don't know how to explain i don't that. think it'll hurt him at all i actually think it reminds me a little bit of people who say the world was going to end in 2012 because of the mind calendar yeah i don't think anybody was hurt by getting that prediction wrong in terms of their credibility with their audience well there's uh, there's stories i forget what exact you know the the doomsday cults who uh get it wrong and lose very few adherents that's what i'm saying it's always fascinating that's what i'm saying in any event i i don't know that brian rose has that same uh, Alex Jones, David Icke, sticky audience, sticky of interestingness. So it just, to me, I just, either he wins and, oh my gosh, you were right. The polls were wrong all along, or he shows tremendously. And it's like, holy shit, you were right. The polls, you like, you got 30% of the vote. You didn't mm -hmm. win, but like still a win for your perspective. Credibility. Uh, but if he doesn't show, I just, I, 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 when I, wa I've watched some of the videos and I go, man, you are really quadrupling down on this it seems and maybe what you're saying is no you're why not. can't he, why can't he just say that the so how are they going to determine who got the second most votes they're going to release you. it publicly show you they show you all who, the way down who releases it uh 
I assume the city of London. I mean, every election in the United well, States. Well, the city of London doesn't have a. You mean their version of P, of B, the BBC publicly owned news is going to announce it? So he's going to discredit the news station? Yeah, who's going to announce it? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe. How are you going to get your truth? Because his truth is he came in second. <laughs> and he's going to tell you it. I mean, What's yours come from? Fox yeah. News? Fox News is wrong. BBC is <laughs> wrong. They're lying to you. Yeah. They don't want the little man to even show on the polls. Maybe. So they're, I, I, I don't know. Well, you could just go deeper. Like, how are you going to disprove me? I tell you that the news is wrong. You never. So what you're saying is you just keep betting. You just keep. You just keep. Just double down. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it showed. Actually, you did show up on the polls. It's 2%. That's what they want you to think because they want you to think that only established candidates can win. But the truth is we almost had this. And if we had just gotten a little bit more, we would have won and it'd be undeniable. Yeah. And they're trying to discredit us so that the next Brian Rose can't well, win. What I Don't fall when for I, it. When I yeah, watch you just, him, you just, he seems to believe himself. And I, and I just, I wonder if he's- He might still believe that. He might, come, he might come in 10th and think he came in second. Yeah. It's, to me, I, uh, I find it fascinating. Uh, because I know, you know, he's done his ayahuasca. He's done, he's done his stuff. He's, he's, Do you think Trump <laughs> thinks he won the election? I think that, tr I don't know, man. I have no idea what Brian or Trump think. This is the truth. I would, I, I feel like I could potentially have a conversation with Brian. He's more accessible than Donald Trump certainly is. But I'm fascinated. Like, well, right now, Trump might be excited to get on the Charlie and Ben podcast. <laughs> no one will take him. He's gone. He's gone from the world. YouTube. He might be very excited to just get a, a platform at all. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Justin, so, any, reach out to Donald uh, Trump for us. <laughs> Tweet him. Oh, he's not there. <laughs> Get Donald Trump on the podcast, Justin. Um, but I think that's how you do it. I think you double down. You just say this maybe. is this is more. I mean, at least that's the Trump playbook. Is yeah, this so. is just more lies. Yeah, I don't know. Anything else before we go? Questions? No, it's two questions. Two questions. Sick. First one is: If you guys were parents, would you allow your children to have social media? I mean, I am I am so far from wanting to be a parent, so this is tough for me to even. I've never thought of this. Let's put it that way. Do you have an answer? Probably not. Yeah. You wouldn't allow them? Uh, I mean, at some age, of course, I would allow them to. But I would take take the average age of whenever most parents are doing it, and mine would be after that. I think I would I would try to raise one. I'd probably move out of the city, go to a farther suburban or more rural, spacious area. I would homeschool them probably with kids in the area uh, and would try to push the horizon of technological addiction back so the reason possible i would love if i had a kid i would love for them never to use social media but the, my hesitation comes from the fact that i'm not sure how successful being an authoritarian parent is compared to uh, no, it's not that trying bad. to raise a kid who so my parents never let chooses. me have soda they never let me have soda and my aunt i'd go to my aunt's and i'd have like three no, this, i'm not saying it's right or wrong but what i'm saying is i don't know if i would be the kind of parent to tell you you can't use social media or just try to raise you in such a way that i would Try to get you to choose to use social media less. You don't have a phone or a computer, kid. Good luck. When you can buy one, you can buy yeah, I'm not That's gonna. a strategy. It's a strategy. I don't know if that's the most this is my the mom's best parenting strategy. I, I mean, I, it worked for me with soda, which is, look, you can get soda. Go ahead. <laughs> but like, you have no money and you live here. So you're and there's so none you, in the house. So you would say, I don't care if all of your friends have phones. You just aren't going to have a, you're, you have a flip phone. Yeah. Or I might get, I might get you some text device or something. Yeah. I'm not going to get you a phone. Uh, or I, yeah, I would, I, if you can play on your friend's phone, if you need to, like, I'm, I can't stop you. I could just really control what goes on inside of my own house. I, I would go crazy for Sprite, man. I get like three of them, but I didn't get addicted to it every day. That was just like when I had dinner, did, there were no Sprites there. Mm -hmm. It was a special thing. Um, so yeah. Were you advocating for soda in the house? 
I wanted it. I love Sprite. Sprite. Were you advocating to your parents for it? And they were saying no? Yeah, but it wasn't even a question. Like I, I asked, but it was I just knew that there was no way. I think you would get a lot of pushback from your kid if you wouldn't get them a smartphone these days. Yeah. If you're a thirteen year old kid and you're like, No, you don't get a smartphone. They'd be like, I'm the only kid who doesn't have a smartphone. Yeah, look, I don't know what age, but just take whenever it is. I'm just gonna hold off for several more years, try to let their brain develop a bit more yeah. before before that. My ideal would be that they occurs. didn't use social media or they used it as little as possible, but I don't know how I would go about that, I guess is where I'm at. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I would actually be pretty laissez-faire, which is like, look, do you have any money? <laughs> like, the no, you can't have a phone. <laughs> like, you get the things that I give you, which of which I give you lots of cool stuff. We're going to have video games for sure because video games are dope. <laughs> like, you just can't. That's fair. You just go, I'm going to treat you like an adult. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Go buy And by the way, while giving you a roof and food. Yeah, yeah, like, I'm going to yeah. give you a roof, food, TVs, video game stations. <laughs> I give you a lot. But on the stuff I don't like. You're not going to get. You get it. Just get it yourself. Yeah, just Figure buy it. Out. Just go buy it. Go, <laughs> go earn $1,000 for a phone. You're not going to do that before you're 10 years old. I'm going to do that saving up allowance. So, yeah. And then uh, try to give alternatives. Well. You know? Unless you have a Jewish wife and then you got a bar bat mitzvah. That kid's getting it right on their 13th birthday. <laughs> oh, damn. Fair point. Um, yeah, by 13, maybe they start to scrounge together. So I don't know. I've never been a parent. I also think it's probably hard when your kids are beating down your door, begging for stuff to resist. But I would I would sooner give them all of the other things that I complain for, which is like dogs and cats and animals and and cool stuff and a tree house and like all of that stuff. No soda though. And Or, or a vacation at Disney World. Or like, you know, all of that stuff I would do prior to social media, I think. And even if I did get them a phone, I'd, I'd have those annoying parental things on it probably. I'd be such, I'm such a loser. I'd ruin my kid's life. <laughs> so that's my that's my perspective. But don't listen to me. I'm, I've never parented anything. Yeah. I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. Uh, next is point on the religion front. How do you feel about having a shared narrative story? Um, I think it helps people understand each other, teach each other, teach each other's kids, etc., of course, you can do this without religion, but it's surprising how individualistic language can be at times, and religion forces a common language for deeper moral exchange. I know this is a tangent, but I do find the Bible to help cultivate morality through this mechanism, or at least it used to. Would love to hear your thoughts. Do you want to go, or do you want me to go? You go first. I mean, I have a response, but go ahead. Yeah. So I have a lot a lot of responses. So to, I'll start at the back end. You said the Bible... Um, creates good behavior and that might be true in the last 50 years but certainly that's not i think that's less defensible through the lifespan of the bible where um the crusades and the inquisition uh were all explicitly uh, the justification was pulled explicitly from the bible i would guess more (laughs) murder has occurred through for religious purposes over the course of the bible's life than through atheistic purposes Eh, no because there's two big winners in the 20th century which are Mao and Stalin and they come in out of nowhere and just slay (laughs) all the people who died before in terms of sheer numbers interesting but I actually think the fair it's like look Mao was going to do that Stalin was going to do that the Inquisition guys were going to crack down on people like I actually don't even know that the Bible drove any of that uh, I think probably it was just tribal violence, which you, which you could summarize as Islam versus Christianity is what caused the Crusades. But really, it, it wasn't, the Bible wasn't doing it. It was just a justification font for it. So I don't necessarily blame 
a lot of those religious wars in the same way that I wouldn't blame atheism for Stalin and Mao. Um, but, but they certainly pulled at least uh, ostensibly the justification for a lot of that stuff was religious in nature. But I, I suspect it was actually economic and political, as is usually the case. So 50 years ago, Bible shared narrative, people come together on church. I actually think that one of the things that you pointed out that religion does really well is it gives that shared narrative often has rituals that require gatherings. So you come together every Sunday. Sometimes, depending on the tradition, it has dancing, chanting, or singing, which uh, builds cohesion and community. So around the Bible, including the story, I think there's a tremendous amount of value to a shared understanding of the world. And I think you're right. I think when you strip that away from people, suddenly they are susceptible to other stories, which could be worse than the one that the Bible tells. Um, And some of those stories are, you know, racial supremacy stories. Some of them, in my opinion, are are the woke Marxist stories of uh, class struggle. I guess kind of what the way that I think about it is that the world is just a history of, uh, not just, has, has tribal conflict throughout. And it sometimes is religious in name, sometimes it's skin color in name, but people tribe up and then they fight each other. And the, better, the best stories are the ones that creates the larger, more cohesive and peaceful tribes. And the worst stories are the ones that are the most warlike. And none of them are truer than any of the others. They all seem to lean on just false narratives. So I'm, I just want to caveat this by, I'm absolutely not saying that religion causes people to commit crimes, but I just did some Googling. Uh, one in a hundred Americans identifies as atheist. One in a thousand prisoners identifies as atheist. So it doesn't seem like the absence of religion is leading people to commit more crimes unless atheists just get caught way less. I think this is correlation. I suspect. I agree it's correlation. Yeah. That's my exact that, That's my exact point mm-hmm. is that if religion, if people who didn't have religion didn't understand morality, mm-hmm. then you would expect the prison population to have a higher density of atheists atheists, than the general population. The fact that it is the opposite, I'm not saying religion causes crime at all, but I'm saying the data doesn't seem to point out that in the absence of having a religion, people tend to become criminals or disunderstand morality. Yeah. I guess, so I'm thinking, so you said, is there a value to a shared narrative? And what I'm thinking is like, as as a human race, there's 7 billion of us, and we're telling different stories to get larger groups to cohere so that we can not fight and do bigger things. And what are those stories? Christians, a brotherhood of Christians, which is like a billion plus strong. That's pretty dope. Um, National identity is one of the other really strong things. You got a billion Chinese, you got, you know, 300 plus million Americans and they, they do things together. Uh, Yeah. What are the stories that enable larger group cohesion and less outgroup demonization? Well, the one thing I would say is, and potentially these, these did serve purposes in the past, uh, what you're describing also prevents further unity in mm-hmm. the sense that if you are deeply nationalist, then you you outgroup people not from your country. Mm-hmm. And if you are if your in-group is Christians or Muslims, then you outgroup Muslims or Christians. Yeah. So you at some point your ideal would be that the in-group is humanity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you can't have that 
if you're going to divide based on religion or based on nationality or based on race or based on something else. Yeah. So while they may have been useful in the past, if we think that further and further unity is good, less outgroups means less war and less hate, then at some point what you want to circle around is humanity. Mm -hmm. Yes, but if you tried to race there, it doesn't work. Like you're, no, you need certain te- technology allows you to, to genuinely connect and that. care and be personally impacted by people outside of your immediate sphere of sensory input. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, we're not the first people to be like, hey, what about a brotherhood of men and, or of humans? And by men, I mean men and women and children <laughs> of humans uh, or, or even just like all living creatures and maybe we'll eat some of them, but <laughs> uh, it just doesn't work. At a certain level, I guess that's one of the that's one of the impressive things about religion is pre like deep economic ties. It created large cohesive groups that were able to work together mm-hmm. because they were subordinate to God and the Pope and whatever religious authorities existed. And then you start to get the same thing with you know nationalities or but it's there's there's few stories that can get groups to go so far beyond their own technological place in history as religious stories. Does it make sense? It's like you're, you're making a claim about how the world was started, where you go after you die, if you'll suffer eternal punishment or eternal bliss. That's, that's a pretty powerful story. Sure. But it's kind of like in business when you say what got you here won't get you there. Yep. Like what got you to six figures of revenue won't mm-hmm. get you to seven figures of revenue. What got you seven won't get you to eight. Mm-hmm. At some point, if you want to get to the whole globe cares about each other as much as if they were one country, then you have to get rid of how deeply you care about just your country mm-hmm. and how other countries are worse. Yeah. And if you want everyone to be united in one humanity, then you have to be willing to love someone of a different religion as much as someone of your religion. Mm-hmm. And well, I guess the good, the, the other question, which we were asking is what is the policy towards the out group? And so like the Jewish policy towards the out group is like, forget them. They're not saved. You know what I mean? Like, but not screw them, not kill them. It's just like, whatever, we're cool. The Mormon or Christian is like, try to try to convert them. But then there are some groups which are today in 2021 is like the policy towards the out group is exterminate them. Uh, And so you want a large cohesive story that also is peaceful to Mm -hmm. the out group. Um, And I think recently religion or at least Christianity has found its stride as far as I can think of in world conflicts. And there's been some, you know, George Bush invokes God's name weirdly when we're invading countries. Uh, There's been some, there's definitely been some of that, but correct me if I'm wrong, that it has not been, there have not been holy wars in the last 40 years, I want to say, or large holy wars in the name of Christianity. Is that wrong? I mean, I guess it would depend on how you feel about the war in Iraq. Yeah, there was there was some. I honestly think that the 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 American exceptionalism was a larger driver than Christian Christian. You know, we're bringing the Christian God to them. The idea that democracy is just something that you show up and and here you go, here's an idea. You guys will be great. Yeah, yeah. Um, as long as they vote for the right candidate. <laughs> yeah. Otherwise, you depose them. Yeah. Anyways, I don't know. <laughs> that's that's my thoughts. Last one I have is. Oftentimes, you will steel man an argument that you might not agree with, and usually you do a great job of representing the most compelling version of that argument. Nice. I want to get better at steel manning an opposing viewpoint, but I have a hard time getting to the crux of what someone else is saying. Do you have any techniques that you use to steel man another person's argument? I have a thought, unless you would like to go. Go for it. Uh, 
I don't try. So here's what, you know what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to not be wrong is what I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to steal man the other person's <laughs> argument. I, I'm aware that I'm on camera and that if I say something dumb or easily up uh, that you could, you could easily poke holes in as an audience member that you will. And so I'm covering my own ass when I steal man other arguments. I'm yeah, going, you lose let credibility. Me, let me make sure I, I'm not, I'm just going, let me make sure I get this right. Well, yeah, but what I'm saying is if you, like, let's say that you like capitalism and you want to go yeah. argue against socialism, if you straw man socialism, you devalue your own argument for capitalism. Yeah. Anybody smart enough to realize you've given a weak opponent to yourself will go, yeah, this guy's made a completely uncompelling argument for yeah. capitalism. But if you give a great argument for socialism and then a more compelling argument for capitalism, mm -hmm. it's a better argument. Sure. So take socialism and capitalism. I'm committed to neither... I have like no preferred economic plan insofar as the podcast exists. Like I just want to look smart. <laughs> you know, I want to <laughs> look like I'm getting it right. Uh, and so that is what motivates me to go, well, you know what? We already have a tremendous amount of socialism in the United States. So yeah, I was going to say my ideal just, is a hybrid. Yeah. Yeah. You, well, or, or something better. Um, so I guess rather than focusing on the techniques of how one steel mans, it's like, do I want to, walk out of this argument with the same perspective I came in as? Is that my goal? And therefore, I'm steel manning as just a perfunctory thing that I'm supposed to do? Or am I using the steel man to adjust my argument? And I think if you change the perspective on why you're doing it, you'll naturally be inclined to like really think through the uh, perspectives of... Because it's not yet my... I guess this is the other you're thing. Not doing it on, you're not doing it for the first time on air. Is no, the other thing that's the other should, thing. People should recognize like... When Char what Charlie actually does, in my opinion, is goes into your bed. You go into your bed, and you try to figure out which argument yeah, is I do right. It at night. I do it at night to yeah. the best of your ability, and you come up with the best arguments for both, and then you decide what you believe based on the best argument you could come up with. Yeah. And so then what you have is the best argument you could come up with for both sides, and then you present both and the conclusion you came to. Correct. You don't start with, oh yeah, I think this. What would the other side possibly think? You you are are doing an exercise before the podcast to try to decide what's actually the strongest argument. And then you come on here and you present the conclusion right. of your exercise. Sure. Yeah, so, I mean, I, th that happened I'm with gender, you know, like many people. I was like, there's guys and there's girls. There's men and there's women. And we know that. And we know that because guys have uh, XY chromosomes and women have XX. And then I guess one of the questions I ask is, well, how do you know? And I go... I don't. I've never seen a chromosome. <laughs> like, <laughs> never in my life have I seen it. So that can't be it. Like, I'm clearly not walking up to people and going, I know what chromosomes you have. So I guess I guess I'm looking at how tall he is and the structure of his face and his hair, like, and the clothes that he wears and the name that he tells me. But if, but if all of these things are in the middle and he says that his name or her name is Drew. Pat. Or Pat. I go, or, you know, I go, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm not sure. So it appears to that that's actually how I'm doing gender. And it really... It doesn't I'm, I'm almost never checking anyone's genitalia <laughs> to confirm any of this. almost never the genitalia <laughs> definitely never the chromosomes definitely never the chromosomes almost never the genitalia and yet i i know it or i think i get it and and i've it's i've been embarrassed when i've gotten it wrong in in previous times of my life so that has adjusted my my stance on gender from some of the most common arguments which is this chromosomal where I, I just laugh at it. it's like no one is checking chromosomes that's just not how you're making this distinction um, so anyway, that was what I did at, at night prior to thinking through some of the the arguments that are uh, inspired or, or the philosophy inspired by the trans movement. The absolute hardest part is getting comfortable being a flip-flopper. It's not tying yourself to 
one side and going. If I do happen to form a steel, a literal steel man, steel tight, unbreakable argument for a side that I didn't believe prior to this mental exercise, then I will switch sides. Yeah, yeah. Or at least abandon my own side to I don't know because now I have two seemingly unbeatable arguments. Mm-hmm. That's actually the hardest part for people. And yeah. that's what you do is you just go, okay. I try. I mean, I'm, I'm, I try. There's some times when I'm invested and I want to win for sure. But The podcast is getting the results of the exercise. You're yeah, not you, doing it real time. You said the other thing, which is uh, if, if I am in an argument with someone and I am wrong, I am less likely to change my mind while in front of them than if I did it in advance. So this is why I, this is why I argue things out in my head in advance because mm-hmm. I'm much more comfortable changing my mind alone in my bed than I am in front of someone that I'd like to beat mm. <laughs> while, while we're discussing. So I do spend a lot of time thinking about these things on my own and I change sides f- three, four times and then I'm in argument and I no longer mm. need to change sides because I've, I've gone through that process. You um, also read about this stuff. You read White Fragility, you read Warren Farrell, you yeah. read all, you're trying to understand what your side is saying and trying to understand what the other side is saying you're not basing your opinion off of a two paragraph reddit post you found yeah yeah most of the time you're trying to go to source material you read a lot more than anyone i know yes i i try to find uh i am genuinely interested in the strongest arguments for things that i don't believe even though it can feel uncomfortable to listen to because it'll sometimes it makes you angry (laughs) sometimes i go sometimes i don't get deep and i go you are so dumb you are so like and then there's other times where i go through i'm like damn Never considered that. And I've, I've experienced both of those. And so that's that's why I have stronger beliefs than others because I feel like I've checked out like the champion of the other side. And I've been like, oh my God. Like this, this is, is so dumb. I mean, we talked about one and it's, I'm, I think that there's interesting points in Marxism, but we talked about the one idea that uh, the value that, that if there's a tree, this is the example that was given. And there's a capitalist, and the capitalist throws money at the tree. It doesn't transform into a chair. Therefore, the capitalist adds no value. The worker who carves the, the chair out of the wood is the one who adds all the value, which is ridiculous because if you, you already have a worker and you already have a tree and there's no chair. Like clearly what the capitalist adds is incentives, takes risk off the table. The tools, the marketing, finds a market, like, the customers. So just, just that, that um, straw man argument against capitalism, as, as this is dumb. Now, that's not to say that there's no value in a Marxist view of things or that they might not have gotten some points correct. But that particular one, I was just like, this is so dumb. Same thing with Warren Farrell when he was like, you know, well, on, war you is did, bad for guys, but, but you, not for, but girls get to stay at home. It's like until their cities burned down and yeah. their villages burned down. Like what? That's a, that's a tactic that you do often that I think people don't do is what would the opposite of this be? That's just something your brain does. So someone says, if a capitalist threw money at a tree, uh, it wouldn't become a chair. You, and you, you yeah. immediately go, Okay, uh, that's fair. I agree. What if there was no... like? So the argument is, without the capitalist, no chair. Yeah. And you immediately go without... Or sorry, without the worker, no chair. You immediately go without the capitalist. No chair. What happens? Yeah. No, you just go, what happens? Mm-hmm. So you're, you often inverse an argument to this try to is, understand if it's valid too. or not. Yeah. So I'm trying. what I'm trying to do when people talk is people speak in, in words and in dialogue. And I guess what I try to do is condense it down to the principle that they're asserting. Mm-hmm. And the principle in that particular argument is uh, if you can subtract someone from a process, then all that remains belongs to the other person in that process. And so I did, I was, okay, let's subtract the worker. Let's subtract the capitalist. There's a tree and there's a worker. 
and nothing like there's no commerce <laughs> there's, there's, there's there's no maybe there's no, no chair because there's no tools and if there is a chair there's no customer and there's no marketing yes. so there's no commerce so, so that argument but is most weak. people don't so do that they just hear the argument sort of and they go oh that's yeah. interesting mm-hmm. that's an interesting and then and then they just move on they don't inverse it yeah there's there's often a lot being left out what's not being said in many of these things is important and i i see that in the myth of male power where he focuses sometimes not all the time exclusively on how wars for instance so detrimental to men's health which it obviously is but just you know says and the men are fighting and so the women can stay at home safely it's like mm, kind of yeah it depends of, where the men are like, fighting depends yeah it depends where sometimes they're they're dying in droves as well or being raped or displaced or you know it's not it's not just that yeah. um even though i like segments of his book so that's all is that it Thanks, everybody. We're going to hop over to Patreon now. If you guys want, we're going to answer more questions there. And for any... How do people get to our Patreon? They want If they like this and they want more content, what do they do? Oh, gosh. If you're listening on <laughs> audio, I have no idea. Do you know It's in it the is? description. It's in the yeah. description of YouTube. Of the audio podcast? Of the audio, yeah. Of the audio. Okay, cool. Oh, cool. So, yeah, if you like this, we basically do another hour plus of content where we answer people's questions. And you can go to the description to join that Patreon. What is it? $3 to get in? It is, I think, three bucks. Three dollars yeah. a month helps us keep the podcast going. Uh, in addition, luckily, our, our sponsor did well this month, but Patreon most months is what. Oh yeah, and if you want, if you want going. to check out marketing step by step, go to ebonpagantraining.com slash charisma. Yep. Thanks, everybody. See you on Patreon. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply.